Welcome to Spark My Muse, everyone. Today, my guest is Kevin M. Johnson. He's a teacher, writer, public speaker, retreat director, and one of the co-hosts of Encountering Silence, the podcast uh, I really enjoy listening to. We're going to be having an interesting conversation today about some of the things he's interested in. And uh, Kevin is an adjunct professor at Sacred Heart University in Connecticut. He also runs a Roman Catholic nonprofit organization called The Inner Room that focuses on silent prayer and Catholic social teaching. He serves as vice president of North America for the International Catholic Movement for Intellectual and Cultural Affairs, Pax Romana, which we'll discuss what that means in a minute. And it's an international network of lay Catholics. Thank you, Kevin, for being my guest today. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, as we get into things a little bit more, maybe you can explain some of what your some of the details of what you do with your nonprofit and what it means uh, about Pax Romana, because I know that's a great distinction that you have in how you're working with the church and helping with um, contemplative and spiritual growth for the church. And I think it's it's really a neat endeavor that you're involved with, and it's it's something to be proud of, and it's something to in the sense of doing the gospel work and um, helping the church body. So I, I would love to highlight that a little bit more as you explain it. But first I thought we could start with a little bit of your formation in childhood or how you were brought up. Did you have a religious or spiritual background that formed you? Yeah, so uh, I was uh, raised a Roman Catholic. And so my, uh, my family, uh, Roman Catholic the whole way. Um, my father ended up actually being uh, becoming a deacon in the church, a permanent deacon in the church. Mm -hmm. uh, so that had a, a major influence on me. He got involved in faith at a deeper level. And right around the time I was about, I think about 11 or 12 years old, he started to do more and more. He was a Eucharistic minister and he started to do more in the church. And then he discerned this call to the diaconate and went further in that. And when I was in high school, he was in formation for that. Mm. And by the time I was either graduating, close to graduating high school, or right as I graduated, he became a deacon. So he's been a deacon now for, you know, a long while. Mm. Uh, <laughs> mm. It makes me feel old as I start to think about that, because it feels still like yesterday. But um, yeah, so my background was Roman Catholic, and I went to all public schools, actually, until college. And then in college, I went to a Jesuit university, Fairfield University, and there for the first time discovered you could study religion mm -hmm. academically. Mm -hmm. And that was really helpful because as I started to have more and more questions about my faith, the, the faith formation was very, uh, very basic and very simple, I think, but I was always intrigued by it. Mm. Uh, I mentioned this in one of the first episodes of Encountering Silence. I was really deeply formed by a powerful prayer experience I had uh, when I was about 12 years old or so mm. in uh, a church in silence. And uh, I, I hesitate to use the phrase. I don't know how else to use it. And I said it during the podcast episode that we talked about it, that I guess some people might call it a mystical experience. Mm -hmm. It was deeply, profoundly different than any of the other kind of prayer experiences I had had up to that point, mm -hmm. and it profoundly changed me because I spent the rest of my life asking my question, the question, what was that mm -hmm. that happened that day? 
And so I was always interested in the Bible and more and more of that. But as I got older, the educational component really conflicted with what I was taught. What I was taught was very basic kind of Sunday school catechism things Mm -hmm. that didn't really answer a lot of the questions and challenges that can happen when you start to wonder, is there really a God and does that make sense scientifically, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I went through a period of time of doubt and wonder and I had entered the university right at that time. And so it gave me the tools for that. Mm. Um, As I went on though, and, and while I explored that and that was wonderful, then I bumped into another component of the faith that was problematic, which is uh, the whole institutionalization of religion oh, about yeah. the the difference between the practice and then on the ground what people were actually doing what the institution was doing mm. what the church was doing and so people even to this day still struggling with things of like the abuse scandal in the Catholic Church for instance mm-hmm. or um, the problems with uh, you know priests embe- uh, you know embezzling money or, mm-hmm. or something and you start to wonder is there something real here or is this all just a big game, you know, or some kind of political power play or something? So I went through a period of time trying to struggle through that. And that got me into kind of the church and the institutionalization of the church and wondering about that. And I had, again, big doubts. Mm -hmm. And I had to teach religion after I graduated. Mm -hmm. I went to law school. I practiced that for a while and I left it. Mm-hmm. And I decided I wanted to come back to teach religion. And when I started to teach religion at an all-Catholic boys' school, I had to teach world religions. Mm. And when I did that, that formed me again because then I, I'm i a geek. And so mm-hmm. if you tell me I have to teach or do something, I want to know everything about it. Mm-hmm. So I then went on this exploration about what does all the other religions of the world teach and why. Mm-hmm. And that really formed me right at a time when I was questioning my own faith. Mm -hmm. And I started to wonder, am I really Catholic anymore? And I explored non-Catholic Christianity and all of its various forms. Mm -hmm. And then I looked to Buddhism and Hinduism and Taoism and uh, Islam and Judaism. I started one after another, just Mm -hmm. pursuing and learning and falling in love with each of the traditions and wondering about them all. Mm -hmm. Um, So that really kind of influenced me. And then I finally found my way back uh, because I stayed with Jesuit trained. And so I had a Jesuit spiritual director and was talking through a lot of that stuff. I ended up going back for my doctoral work in comparative theology, where as a Catholic, I stay Catholic, but I'm looking to learn from other religious traditions and understand them uh, with deep respect and wondering about that. So that that's really kind of my background and, and where I come from. I'm profoundly Catholic, but also at the same time called uh, and feel called to find how my Christian faith and how Christ is present in outside the faith. Mm. And so that, that really is where I'm at. I very much believe in the, the theology of the church saying that Christ is really uh, the pattern that God used to create the world. And so that Christ or Logos or Word uh, is really the way that everything forms. All beauty, truth, and goodness and holiness is Christ. Mm. And so I can find that uh, in every place I look. Mm. And so so I, I kind of approach the reality 
uh, with kind of an open hospitality, looking for Christ everywhere. Mm. And so that that's really my background spiritually mm. and religiously. That's really Ignatian, too, finding God in all things. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that's, Correct. yeah, that's... Um, my my spiritual director that I had till she moved was was Ignatian trained and yes uh, that wonderful. was a beautiful expansion of I mean everything that's in the Bible that I always uh, knew and embraced but never waded into so deeply and and so richly and of mm. course of course it's God is in all things but then you're like oh well, how does that apply to everything and deeply in every moment and then right. then your eyes become newly rich in a more rich way opened and and uh that's that's very beautiful i what, wonder what your dissertation topic was you know i'm basically abd and as soon as the yeah. thesis is done i'll have the degree the topic is um i'm talking about how silence is a way of knowing the world mm. and and i'm focusing on how uh, silence and silent prayer etc is essential for the christian understanding of god and ourself in the world and what i did was i'm using the uh catholic uh, theologian and member of the church the uh, uh nicholas cusa who was part of the magisterium and everything of the church at the time in the, the 1400s and he uh, his work on uh, the vision of God, which is a kind of a guided meditation that he wrote and sent to the monks in, uh, and told them, they asked the questions about mystical theology, and he wrote a whole treatise on what, what looking at an icon of God and using silence, etc., as a way of understanding uh, the mystical theology. And I'm bringing that in dialogue with uh, Tibetan Buddhism. So oh, my, wow. my dialogue partner is, uh, because I do comparative work, I naturally look to all different religious traditions, but specifically my area of research is Buddhism. And I entered the tradition, I entered the program th thinking I was going to do Zen, but then slowly over time it evolved into Tibetan Buddhism. So I'm looking then comparing a Tibetan work uh, from uh, Zigar Kontrol Rinpoche, uh, his work on uh, the heart treasure, uh, which is about uh, again a guided meditation and a talk and a and a poet a poetic expression of how to do these Tibetan practices, and I'm putting them side by side these two texts mm. and seeing how silence and words are are used in both to see the similarities and the differences to learn about both of them. So, well, now I'm upset that you're doing it for a dissertation and think you should do it for a popular book. <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, that's really kind of the direction that mm -hmm. you raise. That That is kind of what I'm interested in doing. Mm -hmm. um, the, it's funny. I went back for the PhD because I, did, I love to teach. And mm -hmm. I basically was told, you know, if you want to teach, you get your PhD and you go teach at university level, which so I'm I've been doing that now for a while. I loved I absolutely adore teaching. But slowly over time, I'm finding that a lot of this theology really needs to get out yeah. to just the average everyday person and, right. and not just for the four scholars in the world who can read that book. <laughs> so uh, I'm more and more interested in kind of right. popular writing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in some academic circles, the idea of a popular book is, is, is looked down upon because it's not rigorous enough, it's not intellectual enough, etc. Mm -hmm. For me, I, I've actually grown to the place where if you can 
my my view has grown, has changed to the place where I think if you can take a topic that is so hard to understand and yet your average everyday person can come to it, mm -hmm. that I think you're doing better work there. Um, yeah, sure. I think so, so too. But not every not everybody in the academy agrees. Well, sure, uh, <laughs> because they're snobs. <laughs> oh no, I don't want to be <laughs> Well, it's it's interesting because you know it's true that uh, knowledge puffs up, and and you get you know if you if you have enough, um, you know, I have my master's degree. I don't have my PhD, and I've thought, you know, what would I what would I want to do with a PhD? I mean teaching opportunities open up and I might want to do a PhD in neuroscience possibly as it relates to spiritual formation. But then I thought if I, if that would help me get teaching jobs, fine. But if, if it would be to write so that other people could read it, who've achieved terminal degrees, I cannot get into that. I cannot get excited about that, yeah. <laughs> you know, but, um, no, I, I completely agree. I, the place for me uh, is is very similar, and I've had conversations with other university professors who mm -hmm. agree. You know, there uh, there's there seems to be two tracks or two mm -hmm. minds, right? I mean, the university there are your deep research people, and we need them. You know, mm -hmm. you know, God bless. We need people who actually want to do the time in the lab, so to speak, who really push the boundaries of what we know and really do it at this high intellectual level so that you kind of get theoretical stuff. That's it, it does. It moves the whole discipline forward. I think that's very useful and helpful. But then there's the other part of education, which is well, let's tell you about the deepest things we have and let's make it understandable so that your average everyday person can use that and live a better life you know so you're not necessarily speaking to the four people in the world but you're speaking to everybody you're 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 making plato ava available to everybody you're making augustine available mm -hmm. to everybody because those things really do help they aren't mm -hmm. just word puzzles and geekiness you know <laughs> if you if you knew them they really could help you but if you don't know them, then you just go buy them. And that's kind of where I'm at now. Mm -hmm. I, I'm more and more thinking about online stuff. Yeah. And to be honest with you, I'm getting pushed there. I mean, mm -hmm. I need to make a living. Uh, sadly, yeah. I wish I didn't have to make money. I, I would love to just sit around thinking ideas all day. But I have to pay the bills. And so, okay, I have to make money. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, the problem is, is there aren't a lot of university jobs, you know, right. so if you went back, Lisa, to get your degree, even yeah. if you got the degree, it might open up some opportunities, but Not the really. competition, <laughs> yeah, the competition is so fierce. Yeah. I mean, there's so many of my friends who are all looking for jobs and we're mm -hmm. not getting them. You know, so yeah. um, I'm not necessarily sure that a PhD leads to work anymore, right. if it ever did, right. actually. Um, yeah, and for the amount of time and, and effort to put in. Well, right. I want to transition to a little bit speaking about the document that you sent me, trying to say God, wild theology in domesticated times, was an mm. interesting little piece. And one of the standout sentences you, you say in here um, speaks about when you went to a conference. And in here you said you kept hearing the same complaint in various forms. The language supplied was wanting and often ended up capturing the artists, writers, musicians, and sterile containers and disorienting echo chambers. People were mm. lamenting how the language of our temporary culture was incomplete and the assumptions about language are not mm -hmm. up to the standards necessarily, necessary right. for a Catholic arts culture. Um, something about zoo language and, and what you mean by that, I thought it was um, a really interesting 
insightful point. And maybe you can unpack a little bit of what you were talking about there. Yeah. So I'm glad you brought that up. That That's really where I, I live now. Um, I find that that's the direction I've been going. So I entered this space noticing that there was a piece missing. And so I agree. I made that statement. I was hearing it from others. And it was it echoes a statement I was making for a while myself before I even went to that conference that mm. I felt like there was something missing and I couldn't put my finger on what was missing. And so out of the research that I did in graduate school, I started to realize, well, we have a very different model of the mind. You know, you see, you said about neuroscience before we have a very uh, when we moved and shifted, you know, about five or six hundred years ago and we started to move toward, uh, you know, the Protestant Reformation happened, the Enlightenment happened, the Scientific Revolution happened, the Industrial Revolution happened. Those are all lovely things. And I, I don't think those were mistakes. Uh, I think they're wonderful. But what ended up happening is we shifted the way we think about the world. And we really kind of doubled down on the project we have in place and the project we have in place right now uh, in civilization. Now, I'm not a Luddite and I'm not saying we should all go live into the woods. But like that word you just said, zoo, really speaks to me because I think what ends up happening, our language, everything kind of we're talking to ourselves about ourselves. There doesn't seem to be a lot of open space. There's not kind of, there isn't a model in place in popular imagination, so to speak, where we actually understand silence as a way of knowing. Mm. And so that really kind of floored me when I, when I uncovered the fact that the ancient world and the medieval world and all the way up until about the 14 or 1500s, no, silence was a way that you actually turned to the world and paid attention at a deep level. Mm. And when we hear the word silence, there's kind of a natural, well, that means that's a void, that something's missing. Like, mm. okay, it's in between the words or in between the notes or something, and that we're waiting for the next note. Mm. And not that there's this moment of where spiritual people understand if you pray or if you're meditating or you're silent. If you're really doing that well, there's kind of, if you watch your mind, if you watch your attention, your consciousness, you have a shift to a kind of a deeper, more hospitable, kind of friendly, open approach to reality. You're like kind of reaching out and saying, what's there? Is there anything there? Mm. Um, and if you're praying to, you know, something divine, then you're actually reaching out in the hopes of contact, you know, mm. a kind of a turning out there to speak so that you're heard and then to listen. Um, and so there, that isn't assumed in our culture. And there was a lot of stuff in ancient culture that had this. So I now the language for me, I, I took this from, um, and I said this in the, that article I sent you, I, I was reading uh, the author and poet and, and scholar Robert Bringhurst, and he was making comment about how language itself, he asked the question, could language be wild? And I thought that was very provocative. It made me scratch my head like what he meant by that. And then he started to talk about how words and ideas don't have to be self-enclosed, that they can actually point us to the world and point us to deeper things. They're kind of self-effacing and instead of self-reflecting. And that that then I started to realize, well, that's the piece that we're missing here, that we don't actually talk about things that the ancient world kind of knew. And, and if you go back, if you think about pre-industrial revolution, if you think about 
early civilization and even, quote-unquote, before civilization, because civilization is only 10, 12,000 years old, and mm. human beings have been around 200 to 300,000 years, um, you start to realize that there is a lot of silence in a natural way of being with the world, that if you wanted to collect food before the Industrial Revolution, you're farming, right? So there's no airplane noises, there's mm -hmm. no weed whackers, there's no tractors. You're just out there with the wind and the birds blowing, right? Or if you're fishing, long periods of time in silence while you're waiting for the fish, or hunting the same way. Um, if you're making your clothes, because everyone had to and there was no in industry, well, you're knitting for long periods of time in front of the fire. I, so there's all this kind of downtime and silence and spending time outdoors and quiet that we now know is good for our brains and mm -hmm. good for our bodies. Mm -hmm. And so I was talking about that, that it seems to be while civilization is lovely, I don't want to get rid of it. I think there's a space for tools and communication, and science and technology, etc. I was thinking about how that now becomes the dominant voice, though, about how doing and controlling and manipulating, manipulating and making and achieving is the voice. And there's never the moment of downtime, just repetitive doing, you know, I'm just waiting for the fish. Like <laughs> there's nothing else happening there. If I'm not quiet, I might scare the fish away. So I have to be quiet. And so I have to wait. Um, that isn't really necessarily built into our culture. We're trying to figure out how we can squeeze more hours out of the day to be more productive, et cetera. Um, now you hear more and more in wellness circles and in spirituality circles about mindfulness and quiet and Sabbath, et cetera. But I, I think that's because we recognize we need that. But our popular culture doesn't have that. And so that that's really what I was kind of unpacking there, that even in the language of creativity and artist circles, et cetera, it's all about your platform building. Mm -hmm. It's all about attention to sell your book or to you know get your work of art out there. And that kind of language of being productive and achieving and doing and making, et cetera, is not going to help us if we're thinking about the sacramental if we're thinking about ritual, if we're thinking about the divine, if we're thinking about who we really are. Yeah, I think it's actually in, in really literal terms, dehumanizing mm -hmm. and and actually leads to to uh, mental health issues, just a, a destabilized yes. unwholeness. And yes. I think you're absolutely right. But but having growing up in like swimming in like a fish in this polluted water you don't know yeah. <laughs> you know that's right until you have somehow spotted a, a different way of knowing and, and quieting down can sort of help that i i like how you also talk about the blind spot of the mind is analogous mm -hmm. to the blind spot of our vision could you uh, unpack that a little bit yeah so um so this is kind of this comes out of the work of uh, some of my influences when I was doing this research. So the, the neuropsychiatrist uh, Ian McGilchrist, who wrote a book from Yale University Press back in uh, 
like 2008 or so, uh, called The Master and His Emissary, was talking about how the brain has two hemispheres and what does that mean and why. And he was really trying to unpack that. And he was saying, listen, it's not like we're right hemisphere people, left hemisphere people. That's kind of a fallacy. We always use both parts of our brain all the time. But then, so he says, okay, but then why do we have two hemispheres? And he's trying to unpack what that looks like scientifically and evolutionarily. And so then he starts to talk about, he says, the, the metaphor I'd like to use to see if this is helpful is to kind of talk about two kinds of attention and two types of awareness. And he says, and you can match them up a little bit, you know, loosely with the two uh, hemispheres of the brain, but I don't want to fall back into saying, oh, I'm right-brained or left-brained. I, w- I don't want to do that, but I'm trying to figure out how to do this. So between his work and then the author Maggie Ross, who was doing this from a spiritual point of view, she's an Anglican uh, writer, a solitary, a hermit, actually, who spends half her time teaching and writing and the other half just in quiet. Um, her book, Silence, a User's Guide, she talks about this as well. And And then I started to look at the ancient writers of Bonaventure, Augustine, all these people who were, you know, Plato, all these people who had looked at how their minds worked. How do we know the world? Mm. So there's this sense of here's the blind spot is what we mean by how you know something is Mm. you have these two, uh, for lack of, I don't like this phrase because it makes it feel too reductionistic, but it's like you have these two moments or two ways of knowing, and it's more complex than that, but to talk about it. I guess that's the best I can do. And so there's a kind of knowing when you're paying attention and you have words and you have ideas and you're self-conscious, etc. That's very kind of controlled and manipulated. Um, but then there's this other kind of knowing where it's, it feels like unknowing, where you're letting go of your ideas and words that, you know, so that first kind of knowing, you're letting go of that and you're doing this new thing. Well, what is this new thing? Well, I don't, I can't know, right? Because if mm. I know, if I know it, I'm, I'm still doing that old way of knowing. Mm. So it's an unknowing. It's the opposite of what we were just talking about. And so that unknowing is actually foundational. So just like your eye, uh, the back of your eye has retina and retina and the optic nerve, and that's how you see. But where the optic nerve connects with the retina, there's an actual blind spot there. And so that part of the eye that actually supplies vision and makes vision possible is actually blind. Mm. So it's really funny where the optic nerve connects with the retina, Mm. there's that blind spot. Mm. And so we can see that blind spot. You can, you know, do these, you know, your eye doctor can point it out to you and you can, you can see it. Uh, You can actually see that you can't see. It's Mm. paradoxical. (laughs) Um, and, And so it's funny, but that, but I say, if you notice, the very thing that causes sight is blind itself. And so just like that with our attention, the very thing that causes knowing is, um, is you know, the, is the very thing you, that is causing knowing is uh, unknowing. And so you, you don't, what looks like you don't know is actually the cause of it, of all knowledge. <laughs> mm. And so what you have to do is you have to release into that. You have to allow for that. And actually that unknowing is primal, mm. is, is foundational. Mm. We act as if knowing and words are the most important thing. And actually they're the um, subsequent event. They come out of the unknowing. 
Correct. Yeah. There. Yeah. So it's the unknowing that actually. So the way that's talked about in Silence, a user's guide book, and in the Ian McGilchrist scientific book, and the way I talk about it, and even on the podcast, I bring this up. I'm really interested in, in epistemology, in mm. the study of knowing, and mm-hmm. so I I always point out that silence is a way of knowing, mm. and that's foundational. Mm. And so you have, and that kind of unknowing is actually knows the world better than the kind of knowing that with ideas and words. Ideas and words are very limited. It's like drawing a map. Yeah. Um, and so a map is very useful. It helps you. It's not that it's wrong, but let's remember that a map is not the territory, right? So right. the map tells you about the territory, but it doesn't give you 360 degrees and it leaves a lot of things out. Just it tells you what's important and that you're looking at at the moment. And so you can navigate it but it's ignoring a whole bunch of other things. And so the same thing here, like our ideas and words, et cetera, they're helpful, but they're not the whole piece. There's something that can't be in the words and only silence can get us that. So. Yeah. That, that's a really interesting thing. I, I've been writing about silence myself and writing about fear and trying to understand fear from a, from a different point, from not being afraid of fear itself. <laughs> and so right. what I noticed too is, you know, to, to try to understand from a reflective point what's happening, uh, it just, it's difficult, obviously, if you're in the throes of fear, you're only in a panic uh, response, right? You're only in right. flight, fight, or freeze. Right. But if you just take another perspective of curiosity that discharges that the fear response. Curiosity is also an unknowing because you're, right. you're holding a position of, of, of waiting of curiosity of, of like, I, I'm here to learn. That's uh, right. So it's, it's also sort of um, a process of having not made decisions yet of having options and just saying, I might learn something. And from from that vantage point, could come learning, you know. Uh, and right. and I think that that's that's the position that we don't often find ourselves in because we're we know everything, or we're busy, right. or we're distracted, and we don't right. have the downtime, right? That's right. No, that's right. And you're plugging into the truth of the matter. I I pointed out. I wrote a uh, a guest blog post for uh, Carl McCollman, my mm-hmm. co-host on Encountering Silence, and who you've had as a guest. Yeah. Um, I wrote for him a while back uh, about this idea of how we need to quote expand our minds because we have a very limited view of mind and attention, and so we need to add this unknowing in. And mm-hmm. in that post, I I said exactly what you said because it's the quote from philosophy philosophy, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, the ancient you know, world, they said philosophy begins in wonder. Mm. So what you're saying, this kind of unknowing, this kind of curiosity, this kind of, and wonder, that word, the way that it was used is this kind of, when you stop, like, like if you come over the cliff and you see the beautiful mountain and your brain just stops, your mind just stops, your body just stops, your heart stops, and you're just open, like this is so beautiful, and you look, that's wonder, right? And that's the beginning of wisdom because now you're starting to approach. I'm open to seeing and hearing. I don't come with my preconceived notions. I'm just totally blown open. Mm-hmm. And now I might be able to learn something new. Mm-hmm. And and it's exactly what you're just saying. That kind of curiosity, uh, that wonder is how we come to know the world. And yet, like you said, 
we come, we're, we're too smart for our own good. <laughs> right. We've, you know, we've gone to school for so long. We're, we're very educated. Uh, your average everyday person, you know, going to work, we know so much and that knowing actually kind of stops us from actually knowing. Yeah. Right. Well, I know we're a little bit running short on time and it would be so nice to have you back to either go deeper or to talk about more things. But I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about the inner room and what you've set up there. Yeah. So thank you. Um, so I, a few years ago, I mean, it's been a while back now. I mean, it's a small nonprofit organization. We, we barely do anything. Uh, just to be honest with you, I mean, just like El, so many nonprofits out there, we hardly hardly any money comes in, and we because you know we're bootstrapping. Uh, it's just me and a couple people who are like flying by the seat of our pants and just trying to do some things. But basically, the inner room is, and I'm hoping to grow it in the next couple years. But the inner room is an organization that focuses on silence and basically social justice work. We are uh, a, a lay association that was actually recognized by the Diocese of Hartford in Connecticut. And that, so the focus there is this, it's a Catholic lay organization where we teach silence as kind of the grounding to, in our faith that allows us to then go out and do just work in the world. And that is all the, the, it combines that together. So uh, social justice work and silence. And the inner room then became attached to, as you said in the introduction, to the organization Pax Romana, which is this international uh, network of other lay associations around the world uh, doing various prayer and social justice work. Mm -hmm. And depending upon where they are in the world, each lay association is very doing their own unique things. There might be a, a lay organization like fighting sex trafficking, for instance, or there or there might be one down in South America that's helping like fight against the cutting of the rainforest and others helping like unionize workers and so that they can get a just wage or etc. So you have these various organizations run by lay people, lay Catholics in the church, not priests, not you know, bishops or monks or nuns or deacons run by regular lay Catholics and doing kind of this work in the world. And they network through this organization called Pax Romana, who is recognized by the Vatican. And so in a room kind of partnered and became a member of Pax Romana. And then I took a leadership position uh, a couple of years ago. I became vice president for North America for Pax Romana. Mm. And trying to network and get other lay Catholic associations out there. And again, bootstrapping, it's just me. There's no staff. So it's very slow going. It's, you know, Mm -hmm. but trying to get the message out there of the lay Catholics are interested in this work. So Mm. that's generally, you know, a very brief explanation of what we do. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, thank you. Um, So if people are interested in some of the things that you're doing or some of the things you're going to, have coming up, where's a good place to find you or the best place? And um, like, is it Twitter the best place? I know you're doing Encountering Silence podcast with Carl McCollman, Cassidy Hall. That's where I found you first. Yes. Mm-hmm. So else? I have the Encountering Silence is a good way on Twitter. Mm-hmm. You know, so my my Twitter handle is, you know, at John Soxo. It's just one uh, kind of, it, it, that is a weird phrase, but it was given to me when I went to grad school. It was kind of mm. this un, this kind of assigned name. I guess there was a lot of Johnsons, <laughs> and and I was in Boston, so it was funny. So it was, felt like it was the Red Sox or something. So um, John Soxo became kind of this thing that I used to 
but you know, make sure I was uniquely not with all the other Johnsons. And then it became my Twitter handle. So, I mean, that's a place people can find me. Encountering Silence on Facebook as well um, is a way to find me. But then my website, which has hardly anything on it, I'm eventually going to, uh, this year is the year I'm, I'm doing a lot of wellness stuff. I'm teaching some classes that are mindfulness plus. It's more than just meditation and mindfulness, but more about silence in our lives and wellness and this idea of wild as opposed to being trapped in zoos. Mm. Um, So I'm doing work there and I'm going to be teaching some uh, online philosophy classes. And again, I mean philosophy like this, wonder, open up to the world, not abstraction, not just logic games, not just big jargon words, but actually philosophy as a way of life, a way of actually opening up to wisdom, you know, in the deepest ways. So I'll be teaching that kind of stuff and and selling courses and giving free courses away too. And so that the place to catch me there, if they're interested and in, in people want to know, I have a newsletter where people can sign up at kevinmichaeljohnson.com. There's not much there yet, but there's a space where you can sign up for a free course that's going to be coming and a newsletter. And so people can find me there if they want to stay in touch and they're interested in wild and wellness and mindfulness and all the things that we've been talking about today. So those are some of the places. Yeah. And you have something there that says the end of words is the beginning of freedom. And that really plays into the silence and stillness and solitude piece of contemplation. That's right. That's right. Well, we're kindred spirits, Kevin. So this was really fun. Thank you for being on. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I've, you know, I've been following your work for a while. You do great stuff. So it was an honor to be asked. Thank you. If you've listened to the show and you've thought, wow, I wish I could find out a little bit more about someone mentioned or a book or a website, that's what show notes are for. Just go to patreon.com forward slash spark my muse. Patreon is like patron with an E. Patreon.com forward slash spark my muse. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening.